0: Welcome to Head, Heart, and Hands, the teaching fellowship of Bob Carter, pastor of River City Reformed Church in Wilmington, North Carolina. The Bible teaches that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart and mind and soul and strength. We want to help you do just that. First, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a call to our heads. God wants us to think, and to think correctly. Second. The gospel is also a call to our hearts. We are to love God and to love what God loves. And the gospel is a call to our hands, to action, real change and transformation. Now let's join our teacher, Bob Carter, for today's challenging message.
1: Sermon this morning is entitled, What Will Christ Say? What will Christ Say Concerning You? We're going to be looking at 2 Samuel 1 as we begin, as we continue with uh, preaching through 1 and 2 Samuel in the Hebrew Bible. They are just one book. They were divided later uh, in the Latin versions. But it's just one book. It's the life of uh, King Saul, the life of King David. And pretty much the entire life of King David as king is what we find in 2 Samuel. David uh, hears in this very first chapter of the death of Saul and is now aware that he is to go forward, having already been anointed uh, years ago as King Saul. And so that's what we're going to see in this, and we're going to see what does it look like, uh, if you will, in a very real sense, of Romans 7. I want you to remember that as you're studying through 2 Samuel Second Samuel is what does Romans 7 look like in somebody's life? Romans 7 is the acknowledgement that if I'm a believer, why am I still struggling so much with sin? Why is it still so readily apparent in me and perhaps to others as well? And yet I do love God and I want to do that very thing that God would have me to do. And yet we struggle so much. And we see uh, David, King David, doing this to some degree uh, in 2nd Samuel so it's a beautiful mercy of God that he shows us the fullness of this life of King David uh and not only the highlights not only the uh highlight reel if you will but the entire life of David uh, it's a great blessing we're going to see in chapter 1 here that indeed David learns of the death he inquires to make sure but he learns of the death of both Saul and Jonathan as well as Uh, The others, but nonetheless, particularly of Saul and Jonathan. And then immediately upon hearing that, he turns to what he calls the Song of the Bow. He just goes into a psalm. He goes into a beautiful eulogy, is what it is, regarding Saul and David, Saul and Jonathan. Not only does he go into this psalm, this song, he says, Let this be written down. Let people learn this. Memorize this, sing this, that they might remember King Saul and his son Jonathan. Please stand now to honor the reading of God's word as we look at 2 Samuel chapter 1. Now it came about after the death of Saul, when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, and David remained two days in Ziklag. On the third day, behold, a man came out of the camp from Saul, with his clothes torn and dust on his head. And it came about when he came to David that he fell to the ground and prostrated himself. Then David said to him, From where do you come? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. David said to him, How did things go? Please tell me. And he said, The people have fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and Jonathan his son are dead also. So David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? The young man who told him said, By chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa. And behold, Saul was leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen pursued him closely. When he looked behind him, he saw me and called me. And I said, Here I am. He said to me, Who are you? And I answered him, I am an Amalekite. Then he said to me, Please stand beside me and kill me, for agony has seized me, because my life still lingers in me. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I knew that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown which was on his head, and the bracelet which was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did also all the men who were with him, They mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and for the people of the Lord and the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. David said to the young man who told him, Where are you from? And he answered, I am the son of an alien and a Malachite. Then David said to him, How is it you are not afraid to stretch out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? David called one of the young men and said, Go, cut him down. So he struck him, and he died. David said to him, Your blood is on your head, for your mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. Then David chanted with this lament over Saul and Jonathan his son, and he told them to teach the sons of Judah the song of the bow. Behold, it is written in the book of Jasher. Your beauty, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon. For the daughters of the Philistines will rejoice. The daughters of the uncircumcised will exult. O mountains of Gilboa, let not dew or rain be on you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil, from the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back, and the sword of Saul did not return empty. Saul and Jonathan beloved and pleasant in their life, and in their death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel. Weep, over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How have the mighty fallen in the midst of the battle? Jonathan is slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was more wonderful than the love of women.
2: How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. Will you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, would you pray that you would help us now, that we would have a great sense of the rich truths that are here, that we would be able to make good
1: and right decisions walking closely with you our Savior, our Shepherd, our King, that we would not be quickly given to emotion or feeling
2: and make grave errors. God, that we would see the rare jewel of salvation and the glorious truth of your electing and covenant love that endures forever. We ask, God, that you would help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. We do see in here, again, even in the
1: death here of, King, da- of uh, King Saul, and then immediately David is writing about it, we see this juxtaposition of the two men. It's all through the first book. Saul is not going to be mentioned much more in Second Samuel, but here, obviously, in the first chapter, it's still very significant. Psalm 50 is another psalm, this one of Psalm Asaph. There's a reference here of the reality of the differences of different kinds of people. In Psalm 50, it says in verse 14, it says, Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I shall rescue you and you will honor me. And we see how that does fit David. He calls upon God regularly and God so often rescues him. And we remember that did not happen with King Saul in the last battle of his life. Verse 16, though, says this, But to the wicked, God says, What right have you to tell of my statutes and to take my covenant in your mouth?
2: For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. And we see the reality that King
1: Saul does not like instruction from God. And he demonstrates that over and over again in regard to when God's will is different than his own, he doesn't like He doesn't want instruction to see how God might be doing something to God's glory that we don't know. Isaiah 55 says God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts and his ways are higher than our ways. And God comes to King Saul and makes it perfectly clear that you're not going to have a dynasty. Remember, God comes to Moses and says to him, you will not step one
2: foot in the promised land. And he gives him a reason. It's because you struck the rock a second time when I told you to speak to it the second time.
1: That's the reason he affixes to it. Moses does not then grumble against God. When Saul hears that he will not have a dynasty, all he can do is think of eliminating King David that might have a dynasty, to go against the revealed will of God. Moses bows low and recognizes, wow, I sure would like to step over to the promised land and maybe just walk around for a couple of days and then die over there. But we learn later, as we look back on it, we just see the glory of God that Moses, representing the law, leads the people of God to the promised land. And Joshua, representing Christ, leads them into the promised land. The law does not take them into the promised land. But Christ takes us into the promised land. Now, it's not clear if Moses understood that at all, in regard that distinction. But God's glory and God's ways are different than what we would think. And the child of God bows before that, acknowledging, wow, there are there are things that, that just, that's not the way I would have done it, as Francis Chan says. And yet God is perfectly wise. King Saul, we find again and again, kicking against the goads kicking against the goads. But as we begin our look at Second Samuel here, we're going to see a different theme. And that theme in 2 Samuel, uh, much more so, is the sense of King David in Psalm 51. And that is the desire of God having his way with us, that God's will would be done. In Psalm 51, King David says, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my sin and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. He's very transparent about his sin. Obviously, this is written in particular regarding Uriah and Bathsheba. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. But then he says this in verse 7. This is King David still. Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Cause me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my transgressions. So he's asking God to work a new work in him. And then he says that most powerful verse in 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Create in me a clean heart, O God. King David there uses a word that's not used very often. It's the word that's used in Genesis 1. That in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The word for make in Hebrew is asad. It's used all through the Old Testament. Barah is not used very often. But King David reaches back to Genesis chapter 1 and pulls that very obscure verb into this psalm, and says, create in me a clean heart, O God, as if he knows it will have to be done ex nihilo, from nothing. Not the idea of a repair work or a little bit of amending, but I need a new heart, O God. And we see this beautiful reflection of someone who is walking with God. We're going to see it throughout Second Samuel, and of course it would be appropriate as we're doing this, to be reading the Psalms all the more. Some of the Psalms were written before he became king. Of course, he didn't write all of them, but many of the Psalms are written by David, and they give us further insight into the head, heart, and hands of King David as he desires God's glory in his life. Well, the Song of the Bow here is a eulogy, as I said, and it is a description of things of these men. But again, as we think about these to men, he says some things that might surprise us. In Psalm 52, he makes a comment that God is always going to be there in regard to difficulty and sin, that you're not going to ever outrun God. Psalm 37 says that. Psalm 52 says that. And so even though he speaks very highly of them, David is aware that Saul has indeed received what he was due But that indeed, Jonathan is not the case. And yet, here he is at the funeral, speaking well of the dead. And most of us were raised to do exactly that, speak well of the dead. And so King Saul does do just that here. There are lots of things he could say, excuse me, King David does. King David speaks very well of Saul here, and we want to be mindful of that. And yet again, this is King David, and King David all through the book of 2 Samuel is a type of Christ. He's a type of Christ. And so here, listen carefully, here at the funeral of Saul, who tried to kill him several times and was openly wicked and killed all the people of a, of a village because they, he thought they helped David. And he killed every man, woman, and child and all the priests living there. And David knows that. But he doesn't make a word of mention about it. He just mentions a few positive things about him and then he says a few more positive things about Jonathan in particularly Uh, Toward the end of the song. There is a great love that he has here. And it is a beautiful thing as he seeks to beautifully from his heart, as well as he can, obey the fifth commandment. He sees King Saul as his king. And he seeks to obey and bring honor to those who are over him. And does so very, very nobly. Back in the first part of the passage notice this it says in verse 5 when the man comes up and says that Saul and Jonathan are dead in verse uh, Saul and Jonathan are dead excuse me verse 5 says so David said to the young man who told him how do you know that Saul and John and his son Jonathan are dead that is one of the best questions you can ever ask that is certainly a great question for Sarah English and Drew to be asking every professor for the rest of your life and every source for all of us how do you know that how do you know that Show me where you got that from, the verifiability of it. This is profound news in general, but it's particularly profound to David because, in fact, if Saul is is dead, then David now definitely recognizes that this is the providence of God and it is time to step forward as the king, of which he would not do as long as he remotely believed that King Saul still had a breath of life in him. And so he asked that question about truth and verifiability and then he gets the answer. It's in verse 8 and verse 13. Listen. He said to me, Who are you? That is, the man is saying, King Saul said to me, Who are you? And I answered him, I am an Amalekite. Look down at verse 13. David said to the young man who told him, Where are you from? And he answered, I am the son of an alien, an Amalekite. The Amalekites are the people in First Samuel 15 that Samuel came by the word of the Lord and told King Saul to destroy.
2: And he did not destroy all of them. And now he dies by the hand of an Amalekite. And we see the
1: reality here of God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. We see it very vividly here that he is indeed an Amalekite who did not fear the Lord, he knew something, he was close enough to know something about it. David says, you should have known. He was close enough to know something about it, but did not know the commandments of God, did not know the nature of God. I want you to recognize verse 10 here. Look at this. So I stood beside him. He says, verse 9, I'm sorry, put it in context. Then he, the king Saul, said to me, please stand beside me and kill me, for agony has seized me because my life still lingers in me. So I stood beside him and killed him because I knew that he could not live after he had fallen. There's no indication here that he's lying about this. It's very likely that Saul passed out when he first fell on his sword. And then later this man comes and he's actually still alive at the moment. But nonetheless, um, that's what it says here, that he did give the actual final blow to him. And then he brings, notice this, he doesn't just give the final blow. He brings the crown and the bracelets. The whole purpose here is that he is bringing the crown and the bracelets. But King David recognizes what he's done. And he condemns him on the spot. Now, I want you to drink this in for just a moment. It seemed right, listen, it seemed right to this Amalekite what he did. Not knowing the nature of God, not knowing the commandments of God, it seemed right what he did. This man, Saul, looks to him with a sword all the way through him, and apparently he's been laying there for some time, quite a bit of blood. It looks to him that this man is surely... On his deathbed, he is absolutely going to die. He is in dying agony, and I can put him out of his misery, if you will. That's what he's thinking. He's not thinking about the fifth commandment. He's not thinking about that this is the Lord's anointed. He's not thinking like King David is, that I'm not going to put my hand out against the Lord's anointed. He's not thinking that God is sovereign, and God can take this man's life anytime he wants to take this man's life. He's just operating on a felt sense of emotion. And it's in conflict with the commands of God. It's in conflict with the commands of God. And so the question is, how well do you know the richness of God's commands and the nature of God? How well do you know the richness of God's commands and the nature of God? You recall that the very purpose of the Sermon on the Mount, the primary purpose of the Sermon on the Mount is to help people see that what you've been doing is you've been taking the moral law of God and you've been reducing it and reducing it and reducing it and reducing it. it. And the Lord Christ comes back and says, no, it's higher, deeper, broader, richer than you ever imagined. And we today have the great benefit of godly men in centuries past who sat down and thought, you know, what is the first commandment? What's required by the first commandment? What's forbidden by the second commandment? And they searched all of the scriptures to study it and see. And of course, I'm referring to the larger catechism. I urge you to write this down It's questions 98 through 148. 98 through 148 are the questions of the larger catechism in which those godly men go through each of the Ten Commandments and they go through the whole Bible and say, what would that look like? What does it mean to honor your father and your mother? What's required by that? What's forbidden by that? And they understand that this passage falls under that fifth commandment that this Amalekite is violating the fifth commandment. So we ourselves want to know the word of God. Listen, in temptation, trial, and battle, you will not rise to the occasion, but you will default to your level of training. We've said that before, but it's so critical. We think that in a difficult situation, we're just going to rise to the occasion. It's not true. You're going to default to your level of training. But for the Christian, it's going to be to a level of biblical faith, including reliance on the Holy Spirit to your level of biblical faith, including reliance on the Holy Spirit. Well, David has the men uh, justly executed, and he is executed. And then he immediately turns his attention to the sacred memory of Jonathan in particular, but also of of Saul. He was king. And so he uh, has this psalm here to remember them that we have read. And he is speaking very well of the dead. Look at verses 19, he says, your beauty, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. And then he says, tell it not in Gath. He's concerned about it just being broadcast everywhere, particularly to Philistia. And then he says, O mountains of Globoa, let not dew or rain be on you because of this great tragedy that's occurred there. And then he says in verse 23, Saul and Jonathan, beloved and pleasant in their life, beloved and pleasant in their life. Well, he must clearly be remembering a few things that maybe Saul did. And most of the things that Jonathan did, we see in the book of 1 Samuel that Jonathan is a very righteous and godly man, quite distinct from his father. But he says positive things about both of them. They were both good warriors, he says. They were both very noble soldiers, is what he says. And then he says at the very end, I'm distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. He particularly focuses on that. You've been pleasant to me. Your love to me was more wonderful than the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. So again, the question is, what would Christ say about us? This is what King David says about both the previous king and particularly about his good friend, the crown prince, Jonathan. And he loves him very much. And he, there is a distinction here, by the way, between honor and love. He's obviously honoring King Saul, and he is demonstrating much, much love for Jonathan. But what are we to learn from this? Well, in every passage, We are mindful, listen, in every passage that we look in the Scriptures, this is Old and New Testament, but particularly Old Testament, but Old and New Testament, we ask two questions. How does this passage reflect the fall? And how does this passage speak to redemption? How does this passage reflect the fall? And how does this passage speak to redemption? And so we see certainly that uh, we mentioned last week and previously that King Saul was not able in his flesh to bear the weight of glory. He was a humble private man. He was exalted to be king and he crushed under the weight of it. I've reminded you before many times Watchman Nee says, only God can bear the weight of glory. And we see that in the fall. We see that we ourselves must take heed to that. That as soon as we recognize that we're in a situation like that, that we want to be extremely circumspect And prayerful and careful. Only God can bear the weight of glory. And so we see that in this uh, situation that Saul's fall reflects that. We also see in this that God is sovereign. Jonathan is a good man, but he dies. Psalm 121 says, He that watches over Israel slumbers not nor sleeps. Why did Jonathan die? Well, you can ask the same question about Uriah and many other things. There are righteous people in the Bible who die young. There are righteous people in the Bible who die young, and we bow to the sovereignty of God because we know that the sovereignty of God is an umbrella and a foundation into which we can place everything else. We know that God is good, and Jonathan is called to be with the Lord, and we still remember and speak well of him even today, thousands of years later. But the sovereignty of God also may well have just been laying the path, it seems, for David to become king without any question. Had there been heirs of Saul, this would have been an ongoing issue. We see that it is. In the next chapter or two here, there is a grandson named Ishbosheth, and there's a bit of a conflict there for a couple of years, and then Ishbosheth is murdered, not by David, but by somebody else. So God is paving the path for David to have a reign that is unobstructed, unchallenged. What do we learn in this regarding redemption and David? We see David's heart in all of this. David loves God and loves what God loves. David loves God and loves what God loves. David is able to look, listen, he's able to look into the life of someone who tried to kill him
2: on several occasions and love them and speak well of them. A murderer. A dreadful man in many, many
1: ways. But that wasn't every day of his life. There were things that King Saul did, and he acknowledges a few of them there, including his valor as a soldier and his bringing goods back home and and distributing them among the people, including, he says to the women, you're wearing gold ornaments. King Saul gave you those gold ornaments you're wearing. He's able to pick out, and remember, some good things as well. David is a man after God's own heart as he places everything under the sovereignty of God. What can we learn about the fall and redemption for us? Well, there are a couple of quick lessons, and that is that we ourselves, you must be born again. You must be born again. all through 1 Samuel, we see that juxtaposition of the visible and the invisible church. You must be born again. King Saul knows about God. He knows a lot about God, and he does not love God. He knows a lot about God. He does not love God. How do you know he doesn't love God? Because when God's commands and God's providence crosses his path, his benign smile turns to a savage snarl.
2: When God's commands and God's providences cross his path, his benign smile turns to a savage snarl.
1: But the goodness of God we see over and over again in the faithfulness that David is strengthened by the Spirit of God. We see that. What can we learn about fall and redemption? That we must know God. The Amalekite knew a little bit about God, but not enough. King Saul knew a little bit about God, but not enough. We must know God. Let him who glories, the Lord says, glory in this, that he understands and knows me. We must know God. And then we must fight the good fight of faith by the Spirit and the Word of God. We must fight the good fight of faith by the Spirit and Word of God. There are adversaries out there. The weakness of our flesh, the lure of the world, and the devil are trying to derail all of us. We see Saul effectively derailed. Now, let me caution you that because we know that there's a pea and tulip, there is a tendency for Christians to not realize the sobriety and the call of God that we fight the good fight, as the Apostle Paul says to Timothy. Yes, there is a P, and we praise God for it. We praise God for it. The P in Tulip is perseverance of the saints. God will cause us to persevere, and he does that through means. We ourselves learn the Word of God. We are filled with the Holy Spirit. We call upon the Holy Spirit. We surround ourselves with godly fellowship, and we deliver ourselves from the companionship of fools as much as we're able to do. The reality is that we need to be honest about our sin. Paul refers to Timothy, and he says that he's a sincere man. That's how it's translated in most Bibles. The Greek says that Timothy is unhypocritical. It's actually not the word sincere in Greek. It's the word unhypocritical, he says. Timothy is a sincere believer in God, and we ourselves want to be consistent about that as well. There's an honesty about sin. David has an honesty about his sin. Uh, later on, as it, as it happens, he's honest about it and confesses it quickly. And there is an amazing reality of the faithfulness of God. There's an amazing reality about the faithfulness of God. Not only here, but days later, months later, years later, David is going to come to a realization more and more startling. And that is, as he sees his situation with Bathsheba and Uriah
2: it's going to become crystal clear to him that it's by the grace of God. There, but by the grace of God, go I. He may not be entirely thinking that at
1: this funeral. It's not really clear. He might be. But when he finds his own weakness in murder and adultery, and then he remembers King Saul or others, He realizes, oh, there but for the grace of God go I, that God has granted me repentance. He has held on to me and kept me, my feet from slipping. Turn to the back of your bulletin on the last page. Charles Spurgeon that I've mentioned to you before. This is absolutely glorious. One of the most beautiful things I think Charles Spurgeon ever said. He begins by quoting Psalm 66. What might David say now and later in his life, and particularly as he becomes even more aware of his sin? And what I mean by that is David begins to realize, wow, you know, I I could sin like King Saul, but God has so graciously stepped in. Come in here, all you who fear God, and I will tell you what he has done for my soul. He has done for me that which none but God could do. He has subdued my stubborn will and melted a heart of stone. Opened gates of bronze and snapped bars of iron. He has turned for me my mourning into laughter and my desolation into joy. He has led my captivity captive and made my heart rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. And he is full of grace. Ah, had he not been, I should never have been saved. He drew me when I struggled to escape from his grace. Listen to that again. He drew me when I struggled to escape from His grace. And when at last I came all trembling like a condemned culprit to His mercy seat, He said, Thy sins, which are many, are all forgiven thee. Be of good cheer. And He is full of truth. True have His promises been, not one has failed. I bear witness that never servant had such a master as I have. Never brother such a kinsman as I have, as he has been to me. Never spouse such a husband as Christ has been to my soul. Never sinner a better savior. Never mourner a better comforter than Christ has been to my spirit. I want none beside him. In life he is my life, and in death he shall be the death of death. In poverty, Christ is my riches. In sickness, he makes my bed. In darkness, he is my star, and in brightness, he is my sun. He is the manna of the camp in the wilderness. Jesus is to the redeemed all grace and no wrath, all truth and no falsehood, and of truth and grace, he is full, infinitely full. When you read about King Saul, it must come back to you again and again and again regarding your own sin, regarding your own sin. Yes, he had great power. Chris Rock reminds us not to be too quick to condemn people with a lot of money for the things they do, because he just simply says to the American public, you don't have
2: the money to sin that they do. Saul had great access, great power. What happens with us at our funeral? The Lord Christ, for those who are in Christ Jesus,
1: look back at your bulletin under the preaching title. What will Christ say for the redeemed at their funeral? He will say, well done, you good and faithful servant. As they enter into glory, as they enter into the streets of heaven, he will say, well done, you good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Why will he say that? Because every sin will have been placed on Christ and have been fully atoned for. Every sin will have been placed on Christ and fully atoned for. Looking at Bibles to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is a beautiful passage that speaks to this, regardless of where we are, for those who are in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says this, First Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9, For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. And so we see the the responsibility of man and the sovereignty of God. But here he's addressing the responsibility of man. Each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus, the gospel, the righteousness of Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, he's juxtaposing those. They're not the same, you understand. The first three are things that we do that are well. If any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, or Not so much with wood, hay, and straw. Each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved. Yet so is through fire, that foundation that is in Christ Jesus, our sins will be consumed, and he is acknowledging that some will be rewarded In certain ways, Jonathan Edwards says it this
2: way, in heaven, everyone's cup will be full and some will have bigger cups. Everyone's cup will be full
1: and some will have bigger cups, he says. So we see that God's mercies are new every morning. We see ourselves in the life of King Saul and we can see ourselves hopefully in the life of King David. Uh, Hopefully we relate to King David in the sense of not only some present sin, but that present sin is in the context of the Holy Spirit and a new heart. We long, as he says in 51, we long for God to have that new heart in us. We long for God to have his way with us in every way. If I might give you an analogy, and I don't mean any reverence by this at all.
2: When I was a kid, it was very popular that if you lost a tooth, you put your tooth under the pillow. And the tooth fairy came and took the tooth and left you money at least a couple of times. It's
1: very common when I was in school. If somebody lost a tooth at school, they would say that, as, especially in the first, second, third
2: grade, oh, take that tooth home and put it under your pillow. Sins are like bad teeth in our soul and they come out every day. And as we sleep, the Father comes and says, let me take care of those sins. And he takes them and gathers them And takes them to Christ. And to his cross. And to his blood. But he doesn't just stop there. Underneath our pillow he places the righteousness of Christ. And he doesn't just stop there. He says, Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us. That we should be called the children of God. And such we are in Christ. We see the reality
1: that we have more than peace with God our Father in Christ. Isaiah
2: 61 actually speaks to this very idea. Isaiah 61. He says a passage of Christ
1: entering into his public ministry. Isaiah 61 verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. We who are in Christ see our captivity to sin. We are brokenhearted over our unrighteousness and the coldness of our hearts. Verse 2. To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland Instead of ashes, that great exchange. Giving them a garland instead of ashes. A garland meaning a victory garland. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. The mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. We see what God brings and gives to his people in exchange for our sin. We constantly get the righteousness of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made Christ who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God
2: in Christ. The Apostle Paul warns Timothy to fight the good fight. He encourages him that God is good, and God
1: is faithful, and God is sovereign. And he encourages Timothy to fight the good fight. We today need to remember those who were faithful only for a season. We can remember King Saul. We can remember Judas. We can remember Demas, that Paul makes reference to. We can remember, as the Christ reminds us, remember Lot's wife. And we can also remember those who are faithful unto death. We can remember those who facing death, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Daniel, or any of the others. We can remember those who are faithful unto death. J.C. Ryle exhorts us to take these things seriously. It's in your bulletin again. Under the preaching, right under the preaching, it says, he says this, some profound things to remind us. Sin is dynamic and we must apply more than static solutions. That would be worth a lifetime of contemplation. If that doesn't describe the modern church, I don't know what does. Sin is dynamic and we must apply more than static solutions. The Christian soldier wrestles manfully. The first thing I have to say is this. True Christianity is a fight. The second thing I have to say is this. True Christianity is the fight of faith. A special faith in our Lord Jesus Christ's person, work, and office is the life, heart, and mainspring of the Christian soldier's character. He sees by faith an unseen Savior who loved him, gave himself for him, paid his debts for him, bore his sins, Carried his transgressions, rose again for him, and appears in heaven for him as his advocate at the right hand of God. Seeing this Savior and trusting in him, he feels peace and hope and willingly does battle against the
2: foes of his soul. He sees his own many sins, his weak heart, a tempting world, a busy devil,
1: and if he looked only at them, He might well despair, but he sees also a mighty Savior, an interceding Savior, a sympathizing Savior, his blood, his righteousness, his everlasting priesthood, and he believes that all this is his own. Believing this, he cheerfully fights on, and with a full confidence that he will prove more than conqueror through him that loved him. Habitual, lively faith in Christ's presence and readiness to help is the secret of the Christian soldier fighting successfully. Listen to that again. Habitual, lively faith in Christ's presence and readiness to help is the secret
2: of the Christian soldier fighting successfully. The more faith, the more victory. The more faith, the more inward peace. Will you pray with me, please? God, we praise you and thank you for the complete work of Christ. We do see the justification of Christ
1: for us in space and time on the cross. We see the ongoing work of sanctification by your Spirit in us, restoring your very image. God, we pray that you would teach us to receive the fullness of you and of your word. That he who began a good work in us will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus.
2: And that we are to fight the good fight of faith. We ask, God, that you would teach us to walk by faith, to fight by faith. To know you well, your character, your nature. To embrace and delight in the power and person and presence of your Holy Spirit.
1: And to stand upon the precious promises of your word and of the gospel of Christ. That for as many as are in Christ, our sins have
2: been removed as far as the east is from the west. And though our sins be as scarlet, they shall be white like wool. White like snow. God, we praise you for your steadfast love that endures forever. We praise you for your electing love that has called us from darkness into your marvelous light. Grant then, God, that we would indeed cooperate with your Holy Spirit for
1: those good works that you've prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them to your
2: glory and to the benefit of our souls. We pray this, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand to receive the blessing of God for the people of God? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace now and forever. Amen.
0: listening to head, heart and hands with Bob Carter. This Bible teaching has been sponsored by River City Reform Church in Wilmington, North Carolina. Our website is rivercityreform.org. River City Reform Church meets on Sunday mornings at 10:30 at the Temple Baptist Activity Center located on the corner of 17th Street Extension and George Anderson Drive. Please visit RiverCityReform.org for more information or call us at 910-520-0272. That's 910-520-0272. At River City Reform Church, we are all about loving God with our heads, hearts, and hands. We desire to know the one true God correctly. We long to love God, our Creator and Savior, passionately. We seek to worship and serve God willingly through the power of His Spirit. God wants us and you to ask good questions. He wants us to build our faith on credible evidence, not just a blind leap. Biblical Christianity is true. He also requires and strengthens us to conform our values and behavior to reflect His goodness and holiness. We're thinking, loving, serving. Come and see. John Piper has observed, worship is not the performance of a routine of hymns and prayers and preaching and anthems. When the angel said to John who had fallen at his feet, don't do that to me, worship God, he did not mean recite a creed or open your hymnal or listen to a sermon. He meant connect with God, focus on God, not the messenger, concentrate on God, not the hymn tune. Pursue God, not just knowledge about God. And in all your focusing and concentrating and pursuing after God, seek to stir up your feelings to love Him and honor Him and admire Him and fear Him and enjoy Him and savor Him. At River City, we agree, and we are not limited by a particular style. Rather, we are compelled by a timeless thanksgiving, repentance, joy, and reverence. Our Sunday morning worship is in Wilmington, North Carolina. Please visit RiverCityReform.org for more information. On Sunday evenings, we meet for Bible study led by our pastor, Bob Carter. This study meets at 5 p.m. All are invited. Come and see...